It's Saturday in the Octave of Pentecost, Ember's Saturday in the traditional Roman calendar, and this is Father John Zolsdorf with another podcast. We welcome back as our guest today, St. Pope Leo the Great, Leo I, who was Pope from 440 till 461. He's a frequent visitor here in these podcasts, and today he's going to give us a super brief sermon from one of these fast days that followed Pentecost, way back in Rome of the 5th century. Also, we're going to dig into today's prayers for Mass a little bit today. I think I'm just going to ramble. I'm just going to wing it, working directly from this pile of books I see on my table in front of me. So I'm going to experiment. Let's just see what we can come up with on the fly. Let's start out today with this extremely brief sermon from St. Leo the Great, the great father of the church, doctor of the church, pivotal figure in the 5th century. Uh, This is from the Octave of Pentecost, probably in the year 442, and it's definitely on one of the fast days. It's going to be really obvious to you in just a moment. The editor of the critical edition of Leo's sermons in the Corpus Christianorum Latinorum I'm holding here in my hand, a fellow by the name of Shavas, thinks that this was preached on a Friday. And he may be right. Uh, still, uh, because of Leo's phrase in here about the order of holy feasts being performed, um, this makes this uh, little sermon very useful for us here in the 20th century because we're enjoying the fruits, of course, of Sumorum Pontificum, and therefore we are observing the extension of Pentecost joy right up to today, which is Saturday of the Octave, the final Ember Day. So in a way, uh, even though Leo is probably about the conclusion of the of the feasts, meaning actually... Uh, Easter Ascension and Pentecost, you know, for us, let's maybe just uh, use this for also for the extension of the Holy Feasts being extended all the way through the octave. Now, as you listen to this brief sermon, you can keep your ears tuned to how Leo talks in uh, about, for example, the course of the Holy Days, which I, I mentioned, as being a matter of God's compassion. And as I glance down here, you can listen to how Leo talks about his own experience uh, together with God's instruction, uh, both of which teach him that fasting is good for us. He's really going to talk about fasting here. And... Um, you know, it's interesting how, how grace builds on nature, right? You know, we all have our own component of experience and not just 
divine instruction, but the two of them together uh, make for a very, very uh, good source of, of wisdom. Uh, also, um, as I mentioned in another Pentecost podcast, uh, having a sermon of Leo, Leo is always tying together fasting and almsgiving. It's not just enough to fast. We also have to then share what we would have consumed with those who don't have enough. So he talks about almsgiving, too. It's very important in the sermon. Very, very brief sermon. Uh, over here in the Latin side, um, and we can, we can have this in its entirety because the sermon is so short. Uh, listen to a few things. Listen first to one of these really characteristic things of Leo's Latin, uh, something called clausule, clausule. These are rhythmic endings of clauses. Right? This is where we get our word clause, or uh, a rhythmic endings, ending of sentences. And these rhythmic endings uh, give the speech a really grand style. Um, they make it very solemn. For example, in the very first words here, you're going to hear Sanctarum Solemnitatum, right there at the very beginning. Or scanning down, you'll hear Reficit Indigentis at the end of a sentence. And you're also going to see how Leo, and this is really typical of his style, he'll create those agreeable rhythms uh, to delight the mind of the listener, but he also does this by separating words that belong together. As, for example, when he says, castigandis adibere corporibus. See, castigandis and corporibus go together, but then he divides it with that verb adibere, right? And he uses parallel structures. As a matter of fact, right here in that very same place, my eye sees we have exercendis mentibus and castigandis corporibus, which I just mentioned. But, in the, of course, that last pair he divides with adibere. So he's got that beautiful parallel, and then he plays with it. It's very elegant. Then he uses the same word, for example, in a different form. The different forms of the same thing back to back in order to create an interesting effect in the mind of the listener. This is a common trope. It's part of the ancient orator's toolboxes, and it's really very easy to do with Latin. It's much easier to do with Latin than it is in English. Uh, here's, for example, a perfect exa uh, instance of this where he ends one clause with misericordiam which is the accusative case, and then he begins the very next clause, the very next word is misericordiae. So it's the same word, but with different endings, different forms. And uh, lastly, just uh, keep your, your ear tuned to how long the first sentence actually is. This is what's called a periodic sentence. It's, it's a period. That's why we have a period at the end of a sentence, but this is a periodic sentence, really a classic example for it. You can listen as I, as I talk. You listen to the conceptual breaks, the breakdown of the clauses, which are interlocked, almost like an onion skin peeling away until you reach the final clause and it's zippy clausula at the end, that beautiful rhythm, which makes it sound so solemn. Once you're used to seeing and hearing uh, these different tropes or word tools or games or whatever it is that you'd like to call them, but these tropes, which were part of the, the toolbox of the ancient order, then you start hearing them everywhere. You can even begin hearing them in our more ancient Latin prayers in Holy Mass, for example, in our collects. But let's move along now to our sermon. It's Sermon 80, preached by Leo the Great on a weekday, weekday after Pentecost, probably a Friday of that week in 442. Uh, certainly it was on the, uh, one of what we are now in the Ember Days.
The order of the holy fasts has been performed, dearly beloved, and the devotion of spiritual joy is fulfilled. Now it is right to come back to the healthy practice of frugality and to provide the remedy of a fast, both for training our souls and for subduing our bodies. Since divine instruction and our own experiences have taught us well on this subject, let us first give thanks to the divine compassion for the course of these holy days. Then, when we earnestly strive for the holy pleasures of self-control, we might withhold some small portion of the abundance of the food of the earth, so that what is not spent on our tables might benefit alms. Truly, indeed, the medicine of the fast accomplishes the cure of souls, when the abstinence of the one fasting refreshes the hunger of the needy. We know that, before the merciful God, the generosity of our alms exceeds fasts. As the Lord says, Give alms, and all things will be clean for you. If we want our souls to be cleansed from the sordidness of our sins, let us not deny alms to the poor, so that, on the day of retribution, in order to gain the mercy of God, we might be helped by our works of mercy. Sanctarum solemnitatum, dilectissimi, ordine celebrato et spiritalis letitiae devotione complecta, oportet nos ad salubritatem recurrere parcitatis, remediumque iejunii et exercendis mentibus, et castigandis adibere corporibus, ut quia nos satis de hoc et divina monita et propria experimenta docuerunt, primum Pro sacratissimorum dierum decursu divine pietati gratias referamus, tum sanctas continentiae delicias appetentes, aliquantulum nobis de terrenorum ciborum abundantia subdrahamus, ita ut proficiat elemosinis quod non impenditur mensis. Tunc enim demum ad anime curationem proficit Medicina iunii, cum abstinentia iunantis esuriam breficit indigentis. Quia ergo simus apud misericordem deum iuniis precellere elemosini lagitatem, dicente ipso domino, date elemosinam, et omnia munda sunt vobis. Si animas nostras peccatorum cupimus sordibus emundari, Elemosinam pauperibus non negemus, ut in die retributionis ad promerendam domini misericordiam, misericordie operibus adjuvemur. That was the very brief Sermon 80 of St. Pope Leo the Great, probably preached in 442 on one of these ember days in the Octave of Pentecost, what we now call the Octave of Pentecost. And this was preached, uh, therefore, just a year after he became the Bishop of Rome, before he became Pope. Now, of course, he makes this strong connection between fasting and almsgiving, and this is, of course, very important to Leo. And he knows that it's important uh, for us as well, not just his own flock of Rome, but also he could be telling, telling us. See, it's not enough 
just a fast. When we do so, we should then share what we would have consumed with those who don't have enough. And in our own practices of fasting, we might just, for example, um, keep some record of what we happen to be giving up, you know, like maybe what it would have cost, and then we could double that figure, maybe triple that figure, maybe use some other multiple, and then give that amount to the poor in some way so that so that we do actually feel the bite, shall we say, of the fast period uh, in our lives, and maybe in our budgets a little bit, you know, just feel it a little bit. We have to feel it. It can't just be oh, I just happen to have this extra over here that I probably won't miss if I don't eat it, and so, well, let's just not eat that, and, you know, okay, there it is. Now, that's not really quite the right attitude. Leo, of course, knows that it's a good, ex you know, good for us. It's out of just human experience. It's good for us to say no to ourselves for a bit. But it also um, helps others. Of course, that's an obvious point. But it's also divinely recommended. The Lord himself recommends almsgiving for a good spiritual life to purify us, to cleanse us of bad habits, of course, uh, help us break bad habits, but also uh, to you know do penance for our sins. And uh, we do commit them. We commit them so very often. So let us take the recommendation of this great saint for fasting and almsgiving. And did you also catch in this um, how Pope Leo considers it a matter of the Lord's compassion? It's a compassionate gift of the church uh, from the Lord to allow us to celebrate and ponder and participate in this beautiful cycle of feasts we have the progress of feasts from one to another, and this is a very mysterious gift, and it's something from the from the Lord's own compassion that we have it, a gift through Holy Mother Church, uh, which gives us her liturgy and and also the liturgical year. You know, the older we get, every year that we spend here, we bring our needs to be transformed in the sacraments, but we are also able to grasp something more about the mysteries we celebrate. And that grasping and that resting in them and that pondering them and considering them also has its own transforming power. And so it really it's a magnificent gift from the Lord that he gives to us in his mercy, something that he freely, freely gives without our meriting it at all.
Today's Mass for Pentecost Saturday, the Ember Day, is packed with the meaning of these Ember Days, and they very much echo this uh, Sermon of Leo, for example, that we just heard, and the practice of the ancient Romans. Uh, today, especially, there are um, strong emphases on the fruits of the harvest, which, of course, uh, harvest, which, of course, means abundance and uh, a concrete manifestation of God's blessings. But also, we're stressing fasting and purification from sins in today's Mass, so that we will not be burned in the vices, our vices in this life, or be burned in the fires of hell in the life to come. So we can maybe have a glance at some of the prayers for Mass today. Um, for example, as I just flip our... our ribbon open here to Ember Saturday. I got it on my hand here the Roman Missal. It's published by the Baronius Press. This is a brand new one, really. It's uh, published in 2007. And it's for, of course, the typical edition of the Roman Missal, and also for the breviary, and it has some supplements in the back for Masses for England and Wales and Scotland, and for the United States. And I love this right here in the title page. It says that we have the Summorum Pontificum Edition. Yay! And uh, I'm looking at our Ember Saturday, and uh, we're just going to look at our prayers here for a moment. We have, uh, for example, in the secret the secret. The priest says that the fasts, we want the fasts of the people to be effective so that we can offer sacrifice with a clean heart. The secret says in the translation that our feasts may be acceptable to thee, O Lord, help us, we beseech thee, to offer up to thee a heart made clean by the oblation of this sacrament. But the other dimension of the Pentecost Ember Days is preserved in the special readings that we have today. There are more readings, usually, on Ember Saturday uh, from the Old Testament, especially. Like today, we have a lesson from Leviticus uh, where we hear about the first fruits of the harvest. Uh, remember that in ancient pagan Rome, one of the periods that probably helped to inspire the custom of ember days in the first place in the Roman church were the one of those periods was called the Feriae Messis, the days of the harvest, uh, precisely around this time of the year, you see. And so the ember days were probably an outgrowth of the of different pagan, uh, three different pagan celebrations. Of course, the Christian church added a fourth uh, set of ember days. But here we also have a reading from Deuteronomy about the harvest. And uh, that's followed by yet another collect on fasting and, of course, abstaining from vice. Interesting, no? It's interesting, you know, it's the, the pagans, the, the ancient pagans would have been focused on feasting, but the Roman Christians were focused on fasting interesting contrast of, of attitude. Uh, then here we have another reading from Leviticus, and it's on the weather and the, and the seasons and the harvest of the fruit of trees and of vines. And uh, it's followed, of course, you guessed it, by another collect, and it's about fasting. What a surprise. Then there is a lesson from Daniel. And we have to flip back to another place in the book. And we find ourselves in the season of an Ember Week of Advent. So they go back to the Saturday, of em Saturday Ember Day in Advent, and they use the same thing. Now, isn't that interesting? Where we have this connection, uh, conceptual concept, uh, connection between the, the uh, Ember Day of Advent and the Ember Day here in Pentecost. And this lesson is from Daniel, and it's about the fiery furnace. You might remember the story where the angel inflamed the fiery furnace to the point where it consumed the Chaldeans. And uh, right after then, we have the Gloria of the Mass, because remember this is Pentecost, right? So we have a Gloria, the octave, so we have a Gloria. And then there is a collect 
Uh, change gears here a little bit. Listen to the difference between this colic. The other ones were about fasting and healing our soul through fasting, and then it's about fasting again, and every time we pray it's about fasting. But listen to this collect. O God, who didst allay the flames of fire for the three children, in thy mercy grant that the flame of vice may not consume us, thy servants, through Christ our Lord. Now, of course, now um, we can we can consider that the fasting, you know, heals us or maybe cools our appetites a little bit over time. And so here we have the connection with uh, fire, you know, the, what, what vice does to us. Vice consumes us like fire. It can do so here on, in this life, but it will also lead to being consumed in eternal fire in the life to come if we are not very, very careful about how we handle our vices. And uh, then uh, we have a Mass continuing with an epistle which is all about trials and hope. It's interesting. It's from Romans 5. St. Augustine quoted this section of the letter of Romans, chapter 5, very, very often. He especially quoted Romans 5, verse 5. Um, in his works, all of his works, between 387 and 429, and of course Augustine would die the next year in 430, Augustine quoted Romans 5, 5 over 200 times. Um, but he rarely, he rarely used Romans 5 before the year Alaric the Visigoth sacked Rome, which is four, before 411. And he uses it very much more frequently between 411 and 421 when he was fighting with the Pelagians about grace. Uh, but there are very many references uh, when he's in his old age and he's engaged in this bitter, bitter fight with Julian of Eclanum, this young bishop who really took took after Augustine. And he quotes 5-5 five, five very often, and here I'm just looking it up. Here it says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. In our Baronius Missal, the version says, Brethren, being justified by faith, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access through faith into this grace wherein we stand, and glory in the hope of the glory of the sons of God. And not only so, but we glory also in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience trial, and trial hope, and hope confoundeth not, because the charity of God is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, who is given to us. Now today being Saturday in the Octave of Pentecost, we have for the last time the special Communicantes and Hunk Egitur inserted into the Roman canon from the Pentecost Mass. We've been continuing this every day out through the octave of special Communicantes and Hankigitur. These are the parts uh, that many of you will recognize in the wretched ISIL translation that's being used in English through the world. Uh, the Communicantes is the section that begins in Latin, Communicantes et Memoriam Venerantes, but in English it's in union with the whole church we honor Mary, the ever-Virgin Mother of Jesus Christ, our Lord and God. And the Hanc Igitur, of course, begins, Hanc Igitur Lbationem Servitutis Nostra, and in English that's the section right following that, that says, 
Father, accept this offering from your whole family. And um, so we have a special one today. There are two days of the year that we have a different Hank Eiji tour. And this, the Hank Eiji tour has changed only for the Easter vigil, but interestingly, not on Easter or during the octave. And uh, then also on Pentecost. And also during every day of the octave, isn't it? It's an interesting thing. It shows you, in a way, how important the octave of Pentecost is. And keep in mind that Pentecost, like the Easter vigil, is associated with baptism, right? And so the Hankiji tour of the vigil of Easter and of Pentecost with its octave refers to our baptism, which involves water and the Holy Spirit. Um, here's how it sounds in the translation I have right here in front of me in the Baronius Missal. We therefore beseech thee, O Lord, to be appeased and accept this oblation of our service, as also of thy whole family, which we make to thee on behalf of these whom thou hast vouchsafed to bring to a new birth by water and the Holy Ghost, granting them remission of all their sins, and to dispose our days in thy peace, preserve us from eternal damnation, and rank us in the number of thine elect, through Christ our Lord. Amen. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, just the regular hunk EG tour here. I'm just going to digress for a moment, because I want to take a, just a dig at ISIL. I can't stand this wretched English translation they're using in the Novus Ordo, and I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope we can get it uh, get the new one soon. I think we'll all be pleased with it. But here's the Hank Eiji tour in the ice, just the regular old Hank Eiji tour that we hear, you know, pretty much every day of the year in the wretched ISIL translation, the lame duck ISIL translation. Father, accept this offering from your whole family. Grant us your peace in this life. Save us from final damnation and count us among those you have chosen. Thud. However, in the uh, in the in a much better translation, we have we therefore beseech thee, O Lord, to be appeased and accept this oblation of our service as also of thy whole family. Yeah, Father, accept this offering from your whole family. It doesn't really work. And to dispose our days in thy peace, preserve us from final damnation and rank us in the number of thine elect. Grant us your peace in this life, save us from final damnation, and count us among those you have chosen. Thud, thud, thud. Just like a bowling ball rolling down some steps. But I digress. In any event, um, I mean, this is, a, this is a rather difficult prayer. Jungmann the great scholar of Holy Mass in his book called uh, The Mass of the Roman Rite, talking about its origin and its development, Jungmann, Joseph Jungmann, he says that the Hank Ejitur is maybe the most difficult prayer to understand in the whole Mass. And it has a, a very, very interesting history that goes back to way before St. Gregory the Great. Um, now, of course, you you caught in the in the version that's used uh, here at Octave of Pentecost, the reference to water and the Spirit, but also the statement of what they do. They remit sins. Now, Leo, in the sermon that we heard earlier, uh, connected to this very prayer when the prayer is in the Roman Canon, uh, he connected also this to the remission of sins. And he hammered it home by talking about almsgiving as cleansing the soul as well. Now, other great saints and writers pondered the meaning of the Hankiji tours. Let me just reach over here. Now, I just got, you know, just sitting here on my desk in front of me is this uh, little book by Thomas Crean. I think, I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly. It's called Mass in the Saints. It's from Family Publications, which I think is the publishing arm of Ignatius Press that's found in the UK. And what he's done here is he's made a kind of a florilegium, 
like a bouquet, bouquet of excerpts of texts, uh, brief observations, little little quotes from quotations from doctors of the church or Christian writers, mostly saints. And they're all about the different parts of Holy Mass. He breaks it down. So there's a section here about the, the Hank Igitur. And uh, he supplies his own um, his own translation, which is really very much uh, more like the Baronius Missal version than the old Isil version. You can tell where this fellow that this fellow's head is screwed on in the right direction because he's got a good translation of it here. This is the way Crean does it. He says, "We therefore beseech thee, O Lord, favorably, to accept this offering of our slavery, and that all and that of all thy family, and to dispose our days in peace, and bid us be delivered from eternal damnation and be numbered among the company of thine elect, through Christ our Lord. Amen." And then there are several uh, excerpts here from different saints we have, and also spiritual writers. We have Dom Guéranger. Guéranger was the uh, pivotal figure in the 20th century liturgical movement. Maybe we can look and see what he says. And here, uh, one of my favorites, the great Jesuit doctor, St. Robert Bellarmine. And it looks like he's going to go after Martin Luther in this citation. Uh, we have Blessed Isaac of Stella and St. Albert the Great, and St. Bede. Let's just, uh, let's just look at a couple of these here. Um, let's look at the one from Dom Guéranger first. Dom Guéranger, about the Hankigitur, says, and I quote, The priest, extending his hands over the oblation, prays anew. This gesture comes to us from the old law. When a victim was presented in the temple, it was by means of this rite set apart forever from all profane use and devoted to the service and honor of God alone. So now, Holy Church, having after having already at the offertory removed the bread and wine from all profane use and having offered them to God, does so now once again and yet more earnestly seeing that the moment of consecration is close at hand. Close quote. That was Dom Guéranger on the Hankiji tour. First, you know, it's interesting that the bread and wine is removed from profane use. You know, this is a very common thing in the church's rituals, isn't it? To remove whatever material thing we're going to be using from profane use before it becomes a sacred thing. For example, salt and water are exercised before then they are blessed uh, for the use of holy water, to make holy water. And this also is now happening in the altar with bread and wine. It's removed from profane use. Remember that the world has its prince, doesn't it? We have Christ the King, but, the, but Christ says the world has its prince. And in a certain way, the material creation that is groaning under the weight of sin because of the fall of man is under the domination of the prince of this world who is the enemy of our soul. And so we rip things away from the prince and give them to the king to whom all things eventually will go. Remember, St. Paul talks about in Corinthians about how at the very end, Christ will take all things to himself and then submit them to the Father so that God may be all in all. And already this process begins in a, in a special way when we remove things from profane use and then you know hand it over to God to be a sacred thing. For example, a sacramental, or of course, something which far, far surpasses the sacramentals in every possible way is, is the bread and wine that are being made special for God's use in transubstantiation. Let's move right on to the next quote from Bellarmine. Bellarmine, this, is, this guy is great. I love this guy. What does he say? Quote, Luther objects to this prayer. Of course, that's the Hunkiji tour. Luther objects to this prayer, saying, Here it offers bread and wine that the faithful may be freed from eternal damnation. So great a power do they attribute to bread and wine, while the passion and death of the Son of God is of no importance for their redemption. 
but these are calumnies, not arguments. The priest is praying that God may accept the offering of bread and wine as the matter of the future sacrifice that he might bless and sanctify it. He adds the three petitions mentioned, and prays that they should be answered not through the offering of bread and wine, but through Christ our Lord. Yes. Bellarmine, of course, making the point that that God is the one who is the actor in everything that's done in Mass. And it's not bread and wine, of course, at the consecration. It's the Lord himself. He's, but he's tying the offering of bread and wine precisely to the offering that the Son makes on the cross. It's the one and same saving offering for our redemption. The bread and wine in its off, being offered is going to be the same offering as Christ. Christ on the cross. The the crucifixion, of course, being historical and bloody, and the former, the offering of what was bread and wine, a sacramental and unbloody offering of the same sacrifice. They're both the same sacrifice, and they're continuous with each other, but they are done in two different ways. There's the historic way, of course, and then there's the sacramental way. I think it's important that we remember that sacramental reality is no less real than the sort of reality that we have around us in material things. Sacramental reality makes it possible for us truly to be present at the sacrifice of the Lord on Calvary each time we participate at Holy Mass. This ability to participate actively in this real sacramental manner, not historical manner, but sacramental manner, begins within us because we're baptized. We have a baptismal character. The Holy Trinity dwells in us and makes us in communion with him. And this means that through baptism we can participate actively in the liturgy in a way that no unbaptized person can. You know, an unbaptized person can do everything at Holy Mass, stand up, sit down, can kneel, could go through the gestures, could sacrilegiously receive communion, could do all these things, but but is not actively participating in Mass in the same way that a baptized person is. Even if that baptized person isn't Catholic yet, which is kind of interesting. You know, we can't have the fullness of participation, active participation. There was a wonderful document issued uh, during the pontificate of Pius XII. I would think it's Musicum Sacrum, which says that the highest form of active participation is the reception of Holy Communion in a state of grace. Isn't that it's fascinating because we have the interior participation, but it's actively, outwardly expressed because we have a procession to go forward physically and then receive Holy Communion. So this is the, the summit, the absolute zenith of, of active participation. But active participation is first and foremost receptivity active receptivity, not passive. There's nothing passive about it. Our best participation is when we are actively and interiorly engaged and receptive to everything that the Lord wants to do in us and through us and for us as the actor, the true actor in Holy Mass. So our regeneration in the waters and by the Holy Spirit, which cleanses us from our sins as we hear in the and saves us from hell, as we hear in the special Hankijitur for this octave of Pentecost, also makes our active participation in the liturgy possible. And then, as Leo explains, our fasting and our almsgiving help to make us pure to receive well everything God wants to give us in the Blessed Sacrament.
Well, folks, that's what happens when I start rambling. Hmm? That's it for today. That's it for these Pentecost podcasts for the Pentecost Octave. I firmly believe we should renew the Octave of Pentecost for the whole of the Roman Rite. That means the Novus Ordo. The Octave is very ancient. It has many beautiful customs. It's spiritually helpful to have an octave because it allows us to rest in the mystery of the Holy Spirit and gain more from the super important feast day and it's just the right thing to do. Now we can thank God for Pope Benedict who by the fruits of Summerum Pontificum made the octave of Pentecost more prominent in the church again and I hope that this is one of the influences that this gravitational pull of the older right upon the newer form of mass extraordinary upon the ordinary the older traditional against the new uh, upon the new one I'm hoping that the Pentecost octave will come back thanks also for all the comments that that you've left uh, on the entries for these podcasts for this Pentecost series Uh, on the blog you know the blog don't you wdtprs.com what does the prayer really say that's whiskey delta tango papa romeo sierra.com come on over leave lots of feedback and use the donation button too the donations help me a great deal they're a source of consolation as well as of support so thanks to all of you who have been so kind in the recent days past so until next time if god wills this is father z signing off please pray for me as i will for you